This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show, what are some dumb MMA sayings or beliefs that people have that just need to stop? We'll talk about them today. Plus, the UFC made a series of announcements about some big fights coming, including one really interesting lightweight fight. We'll dig into the details. And last, but certainly not least, the Thundercats are coming to Hulu. What are some other great shows from your childhood that just bring back all the nostalgia? We'll dig into that as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156, every day at 1 p.m. East Coast time. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Happy Thursday to everybody. Weekend is almost here. Bellator reminder is tomorrow. It is not on Saturday. It is tomorrow. So you get Bellator tomorrow, and then you get Edgar versus Munoz on Saturday. So, And by the way, there's a ton of boxing this weekend. Uh, White versus, versus Pavetkin. I think there's the rematch between Katie Taylor and her, one of her nemesis. Um, nemeses. So there's actually a fair bit to watch this weekend. Mm. Okay, well, we'll get to some of the Bader talk here, and we'll give you some update on, uh, updates on Bellator as they continue to, you know, it's kind of funny, like every piece of news that comes out is uh, just like tons of fight announcements, which is kind of good news, right? It's overwhelming in a way, because you can barely pay attention to any one particular piece of news, but it's good news because, hey man, at least they're rocking and rolling, not just UFC at this point, a lot of other promotions getting going. And uh, that's just good for that's just good for the world, I think, to have sports moving, and certainly it's good for MMA and combat sports. So I am happy to see it. Still, there was something that happened recently um, in baseball that Cobb and I were talking about yesterday that we found, you know, just the dumbest thing on earth. Now we're not the biggest, you know. We're not huge baseball fans. I think the Nationals are, they have still have a sub 500 record. So it's not like I'm even, you know, super paying attention to it all. But there is a, there's this dude who plays for the San Diego Padres. His name is Fernando Tatis Jr. He's the son of a major league player or previous major league player. Might actually end up being the best player in all of baseball. Like there's not going to be a full on regular season. But if there was, he'd be breaking, I think, Barry Bonds' home run record. right? He is, In other words, he won't do it because there's only like 60 games. But he is on pace to do that, and he's 21 years of age. Dude is like a total phenom. Now, he pissed off the baseball world recently um, because he did something that is considered to be breaking an unwritten rule. All right? What is that unwritten rule? It was, I think, the bottom of the eighth, or maybe the top of the eighth, eighth inning. And the Padres were playing, um, who are they playing? The Dodgers? Who are they playing at this point? I forgot who they were playing. I want to say yes, but I think that's wrong. It might have been the Rangers. It was, you're right, the Rangers, Texas. And it was the, I'm looking up the numbers here, it was the top of the eighth. Top of the eighth. Uh, and the Padres were up significantly. And when I say significantly, I mean like way significantly to the point where the game ended at 14 to three, but I think that they were up six to nothing. What was the score when he did seven, nothing, excuse me. He was up seven, nothing in the eight. They were up seven, nothing in the eighth round. And he had a 3-0 count. What does that mean? That means the first three pitches, basically, that this dude threw were balls. So he gets a fourth pitch. And you know what he does? He hits a grand slam. Right? So now they're up, basically, at that point, 11 to nothing. This apparently pissed off not everyone in baseball. That's not quite true. But it certainly pissed off a certain segment of baseball. To be clear, some people, including some old-timers, came to Fernando Tatis' defense. Not everyone was out to get him. But a lot of folks were also highly upset, including, if you can believe this, his own manager. His own ball club manager, the manager of the San Diego Padres. 
Why? Because he violated one of baseball's unwritten rules. I guess the idea is when you're up that much, that late into the game, you're not supposed to just swing away. Quite literally, I guess the idea is you're not supposed to give max effort. Because that's what Fernando Tatis did. He went up in the count big time, and then he saw a pitch he liked, put some steam on it, and sent everyone home. This apparently was a problem in certain parts of the baseball world, which I find absolutely hysterical. Shocking, even. Oh, I guess I could. You know what? If there is any sport that is mired in its own navel gazing and reverence for its own religiosity and how sacred everything is, Lord knows it is baseball. I mean, that is just a fact. So, Cobb and I got to thinking. I'm not so curious about MMA or combat sports unwritten rules in the same kind of way in which we're talking about Fernando Tatis here. Instead, I'm asking you the following. What is just an absolutely stupid belief or saying or both in MMA that people just share and you know it to be just absolutely ridiculous? Just, just dumber than a box of rocks? What would be, not the exact equivalent, but something pretty close? Because I got to tell you, telling Fernando Tatis to not give max effort when he's up 3-0 in the count and the bases are loaded, even with a significant lead, to me seems absurd. If there's anything true in the modern era of baseball where everyone is either striking out or hitting huge you know, uh, home runs, we're talking about exit velocity and the whole nine yards, is that it's not quite like the NBA where people go on 20, you know, teams go on 20 point runs in the matter of a minute or so. But still, there can be pretty wide swings in the score. And they can happen pretty quickly. Again, not like other sports per se, but more than it used to happen in baseball. Yeah, it used to be the case maybe 30, 40 years ago, if you were up seven to nothing in the eighth, you know, that game was pretty much in hand. And to be clear, I'm sure the stats say that that is still true. But I bet it's a lot less true than it used to be. Also, who cares? We're still playing the game. You don't want us to swing on pitches like that? Then let's have a mercy rule. But as long as there is no mercy rule in professional sports, because this ain't high school, this ain't peewee, this ain't Babe Ruth baseball, this is none of those things. This is the big leagues. This is where all those things, all those corners we cut, all those amendments we make, they go out the window. What is something in MMA that people just say or believe that they assume to be true that is just stupid and indefensible? 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. I'll go first on this one to help you understand what I'm talking about. And this is one that I don't think is like egregiously stupid, but it's stupid enough that I'm going to mention it here, which is never leave it in the hands of the judges. Now, I understand the idea behind that. I do. I honest to God do, because you just can't rely on them. And so as a way to say, you know, look, to the extent that finishing is, is a reasonable and possible thing, it's worth pursuing. I get it. But also, <laughs> many fights, most, are not going to end in a finish. Most are going to be decisions or a huge portion of them, 40% or more. It's just not realistic, right? Rather than saying, yeah, just fight to the finish. Why don't we just make judging better? <laughs> I know that sounds controversial. Like, wow, you mean we could actually do a better job with this? Perish the thought. So when people say, you know what? He left it in the hands of the judges. Oh, word, he entrusted people to do their job competently. Wow, he's got some nerve, huh? See, I don't like that. I think it's really stupid. And it deserves to be said as much. If you want to say, you know, uh, in a close fight, you have to understand the difficulty you might have in, in having the judges see the fight your way. You know, it's not nearly as neat and wrapped and tidy as never leave it in the hands of the judges. But when you make something so declarative and absolute and you, you, the word never is quite literally in the statement, you're going to run into problems. 
never, really never, I should never leave it in the hands of the judges. You're fighting the best dudes on earth, and I can never trust you to get it right. Really? That's the idea? Well, then maybe something is wrong with judging that we should address. Not tell the fighters, put yourself in such a risk-welcoming situation that you have to find a way to get around them. If they're that bad, maybe solve the problem. I don't know. That's just me thinking out loud. Cobb, I got another one that is just it kills me, and I've seen people use it all the time. Ready? Ready. To be the champ, you got to beat the champ, meaning... You just, you just stole mine. <laughs> yeah. If you're in a close fight, even if you kind of narrowly edge the champion, that doesn't count because apparently to beat the champion, you have to achieve a higher degree of uh, winning than they have to, which, by the way, folks, I hope you understand, is not, in fact, true even a little bit. You don't have to do that at all. That is actually total nonsense, and anyone who tells you that is a dum-dum. If you you ever go to a fight party again, and I guess some parts of the country are still having them, but if you do and someone at the party says to be the champ, you got to beat the champ, you can look at your friends and go, that gentleman over there, you see him, the one who said that? He is a moron. You are allowed to do that. You have my permission. Is there another one I'm not thinking of that's a real that's a standout like Jesus Christ that's dumb? I don't know if it's standout anymore, but I think the idea of it is starting to change a little bit uh, over the last year or two. The going out on your shield type of thing. Like that idea of like that you should just be allowed to go out there and continuously get killed if you're already being killed and not have anyone stop it for you. Like the idea that, that that's still pretty lead. prevalent. It's prevalent, you know, but I feel it, like it's it's starting to crack a little bit more than it used to. You know the problem with that is? Is that there are still fighters who go out there and argue for that on social media. That's the problem. It's not, it's not like it's fans at the fighter's expense being like, oh, you know, this is a thing that should happen. And the fighters are like, no, that's really bad for our health. You've actually got something of the opposite. You've got... Uh, you've got fighters <laughs> being like, hey, we should do this. And fans being like, are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? But you're right. I am noticing a bit of a, a bit of a, 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 a small, a small sea change in that. In that eight seven seven. Go ahead. I say, in that same idea, do you have more respect for fighters who don't tap than fighters who do? Like the idea of like tapping out, like, like uh, Connor McQuitter and stuff like that for tapping out to a choke. Like more respect for someone laying in there and just going to sleep. Not really. I mean, I'll tell you this much. Um, especially not on limb appendage, like on appendage submissions. You know, I'll tell you this what. This I'll say this. If you go out trying to fight to the last second on a strangulation, I do tend to tip my hat to that. But that doesn't mean you're a better fighter. Like, so for example, Phil Baroni got put out completely uh, by Frank Shamrock, you know, fighting hands to the last second. Um, and, and so did Holly Holm. But I can think of a million fighters who have tapped to strangulations who had much better careers than they do. See, that's sort of the point. It's like, do I think that, you know, there's something to be said for a fighter who, on a strangulation, you know, squirms and fights until literally the life is taken from them? Yes, I think there's something to be said for that. But, but that doesn't mean, A, they're a better fighter, and B, that's got nothing to do with arm bars or heel hook. Like, no, I'm not going to tap to a heel hook. You're a dumbass. Like, dude, here's the thing about a heel hook. Cobb, a heel hook is like the coronavirus. <laughs> Here's what I mean. It doesn't matter what you think about it. A heel hook is either on or it's not. You know what I mean? And if, it's, if you have somebody like Ryan Hall and they've got a good bite on your ankle and you're not going to tap because you're too proud, you're a dumb fuck. He's going to shred every part of your ankle and knee. Like, so what are you, you going to show us how tough you are by ruining your own anatomy and endangering your future career? You're a in moron. <laughs> yeah, in eight months, and you're gonna have, and you're gonna have a limp the rest of your life. You dumb ass. No, I don't. I don't look at that in any kind of like, wow, look how savage he is. The strangulation, I think, is a little bit different because the consequences are not nearly as dire, and so there's something to be said for like ferociously trying to to fight out. But if someone has you in a choke, it means you're losing. <laughs> That's the whole point. It's like how many times have you seen Saint Pierre go out? from a choke and never tap never because dudes don't get his back 
they never find themselves in a position to get him with a guillotine or his back flat against the mat for a head and arm triangle. No one is taking his back. Nothing. That's why you never see him go out that way because he's never in a compromised position. He's too good. You know, it's just ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. So I like, listen, I will, I will, as I said, I will tip my hat a little bit to people who fight strangulations until the last possible second. I think there's something a little bit to be said for that. But you dumb fucks who are like, I'm not going to tap to an arm bar. Okay, well, you know, good luck uh, bending your elbow to pick up your grandkids when you're 50. You're going to, you better, better hope you have some money health insurance at that point because you know what? UFC ain't going to fix it. I'll tell you that much. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Let's take a couple of these phone calls if we can. Let's go to Tanner, who's in Ohio. Hi, Tanner. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Good, buddy. Um, so I just wanted to cover a couple of things. A big baseball and MMA fan. So the Tatis Jr. thing, and, I, and I've been a baseball fan for a long time, is ridiculous that anyone's upset about a guy doing his job. Uh, in a major league sport where everyone's a professional. It's not like this is even Little League or something like that. And then the By the way, real quickly, Tanner, real quickly. For, Go ahead. Hold on. Tanner, real quickly, for our fans at home who may not watch baseball, how good is Fernando Tatis Jr.? Probably the best player in the league. Yeah, I mean, he's getting up there with Trout now, I would say. Okay. Uh, as far as being the best player in the league. Yeah, and uh, – so I was basically saying about him, I mean, that's ridiculous, especially his manager didn't have his back. That's like an unwritten rule. Why would you talk about that in the media? Um, two, you guys kind of covered it real quick, but uh, the fact that when they anyone that taps their submission, they call a quitter, ridiculous. And building off of that, to add to what you were saying, uh, I think Askren called out O'Malley for being soft because he could have hopped back to the locker room. Like, what, the, what does that prove? Uh, you know, I mean, maybe it says something about his durability, but not, I mean, that, that doesn't prove anything. You don't have to be tough for just the sake of being tough when it comes down to it. I just think that's a ridiculous MMA thing. Yeah, and Tanner, that. to add, appreciate your call. And Tanner, to add to your point, it was revealed by O'Malley's coach that the medical personnel made him take that stretcher. He, he did the same thing. He asked not to take it, and the medical personnel were like, it's not optional. You have to do it. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not, or like, you know, how are you going to enforce something like that? But, you know, apparently they put their foot down for whatever that's worth, you know. And so if you're there, what are you going to do? You're just going to sit there and argue with him forever? I mean, they make you do it. The doctors make you do it. The commission might. You know what? I bet the commission ordered him to do it. And at that point, you don't have a choice. You just have to do what they say. You know, am I really going to sit here? and? I mean, the guy fights for a living. You know, cut him a break. And also, you know, listen, like Ben Askren's athletic career in terms of wrestling was phenomenal. And he did great, great things as a uh, uh, an MMA champion through Bellator and through one. But, you know, you would think after the UFC run that he had, he might have a little bit more humility about criticizing others. It's a little weird. Let's go to Michael in San Diego. Hi, Michael. You're on the Luke Thomas Show. Hey, what's going on, Luke, brother? Hey, I got two quick ones. Cobb kind of mentioned them. I mean, the common denominator is they always seem like bro science to me. People who make comments like this usually never train, let alone could take a kid's jujitsu class. But my two big ones are criticizing or devaluing fighters who admit they're afraid to make that walk. Me as a competitor, I've sat in that locker room being like, what the fuck am I doing? But knowing that they, like professionals like Darren Till or even Mike Tyson have come out and said they're scared shitless before they do this, but they say fucking do it anyway. That's brought a lot of value to me as a, as a competitor. So I don't understand why people criticize them for being open. And the second thing is tapping the strikes. Like, let's not criticize somebody who's in the cage who's fighting who knows they're done and they want to fight to live another day and they tap the strikes and that's fine. I don't have an issue with that. So thanks. Great topic, Luke. Have a good one, man. Yeah. I appreciate that too. I mean, St. Pierre tap. That's what I always say. St. Pierre tapped the strikes. You're going to tell me he wasn't a good fighter. St. Pierre probably beat the shit out of your favorite fighter, not the caller, but I'm saying proverbially and he tapped the strikes, you know, some of these guys who just don't buy into the mythology about it. You, you, you tend to see they perform a lot better sometimes. It's, it's always worth keeping that in mind. And lastly, I would just say one more thing about courage. The best thing I ever heard about courage is this. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is doing what you're supposed to despite it. People think that like the, the – I've said this before. There might be circumstances in a fight or in a situation um, in a professional contest 
where being a bite down on the mouthpiece kind of guy could serve you well. I, I, I truly believe that. There might actually be individual circumstances where that's going to be the case. But in general, those are not the best fighters, the ones who do that. In general, the best fighters are the ones who, you know, a lot of it is committed to memory and they're just flowing. But they're the ones that involve things like rhythm changes, camouflage, fainting. Uh, um, uh, they have excellent timing. They set traps. They, their game involves tricking you. Those are typically the best ones. Like you, you, you might be in the trenches in a fight, and you might have to just really you know, drive your molars into that gum shield and fight your way out of it. But they're, they're more commonly than not, like why did Stipe beat DC? Because he bit down on his mouthpiece and just ran at him? No, because he was using motion to create openings, because he had good footwork, because he was changing up his timing and his rhythm, and he tricked him. He tricked them. The best fighters in the world, you can't just throw punches and land on them very often. It's pretty hard to do that. You have to trick them. You have to make them think that one thing is going to happen and then you do the other. Otherwise, none of it works. So to that end about bravery, bravery and fighting is not the absence of fear. It is having it and still going through with your task at hand anyway. That is bravery is that you feel the same kind of fear that a lot of people do, and you still went out there and did your job. That, that is what's impressive. Not like some cyborg robotic absence of normal human emotion. Those guys can beat up, you know, average losers, but they can't beat up the very best ones. Hey everyone, this is Lisa Ann, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, The Lisa Ann Experience. This is my chance to share with you my experiences, past and present, including how I went from living in the fantasy world of adult films to talking fantasy sports on Sirius XM. Each week, I'll introduce you to some of the people I've met on my journey and invite friends on to help me read through the endless ridiculousness that lands in my inbox. New episodes are available every Wednesday on the Sirius XM app and Apple Podcasts. I promised you three, I mean, there's probably more than this, but three fights that we're going to focus on for this segment on the UFC side of things. So it goes something like this. I'll tell you the least interesting one first. Uh, Courtney Casey will take on Priscilla Cachuera. I guess that's going to be on the uh, UFC card on October 31st. So take that for whatever it's worth. Um, on October 3rd, I believe... This one to me is interesting, although this is not the one that I had teased in the last segment, but still pretty interesting for different reasons. Uh, Carlos Condit is back, which I got to tell you, I am very surprised by. I thought for sure he'd hang it up by now, but I guess not. Taking on Court McGee. Let's recap where we are with these two gentlemen, shall we? Carlos Condit, who I don't think has ever been the same since the Robbie Lawler fight, 36 years of age. Um, he is riding a five-fight losing streak. More than that, since defeating Nick Diaz in 2012, he has lost, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of his last 10. He has won 20% of his bouts. Now, in fairness to him, let's be clear, that early part of that losing streak is St. Pierre, former, ch or, you know, yeah, former champ, Hendricks, former champ, Woodley, former champ, and Lawler, former champ. Okay, you can be forgiven that. And then in between those, he rematched Martin Kamen and TKO'd him and rematched Tiago Alves back in 2015 and TKO'd him as well. So in fairness there, he was losing at times, but he was still beating highly competitive fighters in a very, very talent-rich stack division. It's after that where things really took a turn for the worst. He lost in 2016 to Demi and Maya being submitted. He lost in 2017 to Neil Magny via decision. He lost in 2018 to Alex Oliveira via guillotine choke in the second round. And then he lost to Michael Chiesa, who he got bossed around by in December in 2018 uh, at UFC 232. So that's really where things begin to go from bad to worse, because he was at least still winning in that St. Pierre to Lawler stretch. It's after Lawler. He just hasn't put a win together at all. So you got to wonder, six losses in a row, UFC might want to call it a day on him. This, is, this seems to me like if you can't win this one, I don't know what you can do. 
Now, Core McGee is not in a much better position, to be honest with you. It's better, but not a whole lot. The best win streak of his career came early, um, all the way back in 2010. He had beaten Chris McRae and then Ryan Jensen and then Donkey Yang. Now, he had lost to a couple of fighters who were pretty good, Costas Philippou and Nick Ring. He rebounded against some other good fighters. By the way, he's got a, a split decision win over Robert Whitaker, Cobb. Can you believe that? Court McGee has a split decision win over Robert Whitaker from 2013. Is that shocking or what? Like the old Stefan Struve, uh, Stipe Miocic. <laughs> Sometimes you know, we we'll just find you early. <laughs> you know what? You know what we should do? What's we that? should make a li- we should make a list of the best fighters with the weirdest losses. That'd be fun. Like, you know, Stipe having a loss to Stefan Struve. And now, by the way, Stipe didn't just lose to Stefan Struve. He got finished. And and if you watch the fight, it's not especially close. Like, it, I mean, it's competitive or whatever up until Struve starts to unload on him and Stipe just folds. It's like, are you kidding me? Yes, it's true. And admittedly, the Whitaker-McGee fight is a split decision loss. So, you know, that was competitive too either way. But I got to tell you, Cobb, that is shocking, super shocking. I, I, if you had asked me, pop quiz, um, who's a decorated champion or has been a decorated champion uh, in middleweight that has a loss to Robert Whitaker, excuse me, to um, Court McGee, I would never have picked Robert Whitaker. I've been like, did Silva fight him recently and lose? <laughs> <laughs> is that who he's been fighting? You know, that is just bizarre. Did he uh, fight BJ Penn at any point? <laughs> Hilarious. All right. So he beats Robert Whitaker again. It's close, but whatever. Loses to Ryan LaFlair, but LaFlair's a tough guy. And ever since then, he's been kind of up and down. So he loses to LaFlair. He beats this dude named Marco Alessandri, who's not even in the UFC anymore. Loses to Santiago Ponzinibbio quickly, but rebounds against Dominic Steele. Drops two in a row, and this is where things started to get bad. He lost in 2017 to Ben Saunders and Sean Strickland. Now, those are good fighters, but... Um, you know, they're a bit of a tear down from who he was kind of fighting before. He beat Alex Garcia, which was a nice win. But then he lost to Diego Lima, and then he lost to Sean Brady in his last fight. And since then, he just kind of looked, I don't know, languid. And, and, and if you look at this, a lot of the wins and a lot of the losses, they're all decisions. In fact, either way, since 2011, either direction, either a win or a loss, only one of them has been a stoppage, and it was the TKO loss to Ponzinibbio. So in every other win or in every other loss, it's been a decision. Some unanimous, some split, but just decision. So it's hard for him to get ahead of guys, and it's hard for them to get too far ahead of him. He is sort of resilient in that way. But whenever you see a guy who has that many decisions, it clearly tells you that there is a finishing issue that they have. Still, it's just kind of interesting, right? So this, to me, is very much a bit of a loser-leaves-town fight. I don't, I don't know how else you can, you can say that. I mean, it's just sort of obvious at this point what that is. Now, which brings us to the last fight, that this was the one Cobb and I saw, and we were like, ooh, this one is interesting. UFC 254. You guys ready for this? Islam Makachev is going to be back in action, taking on Rafael Dos Anjos. Wow, that is something. I love this fight, first of all, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, RDA back at lightweight. I know that cut was tough for him, but I feel like nutrition is getting better in the UFC. I feel like weight cutting science is getting better, and I feel like... He could probably make it in a safer way than he once did. I really feel like getting the right nutritionist is just absolutely critical to, 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 to that equation. Okay? So, first things first, back at lightweight. And Cobb, you believe that RDA is, when he's most competitive, it's in that weight class, right? Yeah, that's what I think. Because, I mean, he had a good run at welterweight when he first got there, but like when he really got to the, some of the top guys, the guys who could really bully him around, yeah, it was a different story. So uh, I think he's better off at lightweight. 
So since going to welterweight in 2017, you're right. He beat Tarek Safadine, who is a very credentialed fighter. He submitted Neil Magny in the first round. I forgot about that, dude. That's such a nice win. And then he beat Robbie Lawler. Now, remember, he was coming off those back-to-back losses to Eddie Alvarez where he had the terrible weight cut, and then he fought Tony Ferguson five rounds and losing a decision to him. So he says, you know what? The cut's too much. Forget about it. I'm going to go to, to, to uh, welterweight. And he beats Safadine, Magny, and Lawler in a row. Pretty impressive run. But since then, to Cobb's point, you know, the upper end of that division, it's just been too hard for him. Colby Covington beat him in June 2018. Kamara Usman absolutely thrashed him in November of 2018. Then Kevin Lee came up, which Rafael Dos Anjos beat him. But, you know, that's another blown up lightweight, basically. And then he had two subsequent fights where he lost to Leon Edwards and then Michael Chiesa, right? So, you know, and Chiesa was the one where it's like he at that point was not an upper echelon welterweight, but just the size differential was just way too much for him, way too much for him. So it takes us to the following position. He is going to take on Islam Makachev. Let me tell you where Makachev is in all of this. Just running table on these fools. He lost the second fight in his UFC career back in 2015. Cobb, speaking of like elite fighters who are going to have that funky loss on their record, the, pay attention to Makachev because he might have the Adriano Martins loss might actually end up being that. So he lost to Adriano Martins via KO, and it was like a bad KO too. He got flatlined in uh, 2015. Since then, he hasn't looked back, folks. He beat Chris Wade via decision, Nick Lentz via decision. He knocked out Gleason Tebow. He submitted Cajun Johnson. He beat Armin Saryukian, who we know is a tough SOB, and then recently just defeated Davi Hamosh at UFC 242 back in September of 2019. Islam Makachev is 18-1 and and on his way. This is a very much who's coming, who's going, you name it type of fight. This is, this is what that is about, ultimately. It does, is the return, is the return to lightweight for Dos Anjos, is that his salvation or is this the beginning of the end for him as a super elite fighter in two different weight classes? Or, you know, is, is this Makachev ready to take that next step into um, the upper echelons of the lightweight division, or is he going to be this guy who can beat very good fighters, but not the best ones? Love, love, love this contest between Dos Anjos and Makachev. And Bellator used to have the saying when it was Sean Wheelock and Jimmy Smith doing commentary, hard to go wrong when you get a Russian and a Brazilian going at each other. Hard to go wrong. I would agree with that. An American now too, by the way, in the case of Rafael Dos Anjos, but you know, natively Brazilian. Real quickly, I want to go over this uh, one idea. He didn't say it explicitly in these terms, but you get the idea with it. Basically, Michael Chandler was like talking about, hey, you know, fight suggestions, and if the world wants it, it will happen. And he posted a gif of a diamond spinning. And the implication there appears to be that, you know, if the world wants it, we can see a fight between Michael Chandler and Dustin Poirier. And, buddy, I got to tell you, I mean, we talked about it previously, like what would be some fun or interesting fights for Michael Chandler. They don't come much better as an idea than that one. That is right up there with, I mean, what an incredible contest that would be. And frankly, there are reasons you would imagine either guy could win. Dustin, because he is super well-rounded, he's fought the best of the best. He's probably going to have the advantage on the feet pretty considerably. Um, Still, he does tend to get hit. And Michael Chandler is fast, he's explosive, he can wrestle, he might take Dustin down, but Dustin's got a good guard, he is a black belt in jiu-jitsu, he could, you know, the guillotine is not nearly all that successful, but I wouldn't say he'll never get it. You could just imagine, the point being is, whoever you want to favor in that one, favor him. You want to favor Dustin, fine. You want to favor Chandler, fine. You want to heavily favor Dustin, fine. Whatever, favor who you want to favor. But the idea that that wouldn't be exciting seems insane. And the idea that now either guy would have no chance also seems to me totally out to lunch. You got two action fighters whose games are built. This is less so the case for Dustin these days, actually. But 
historically speaking, much more built on offense than defense. Now, in fairness to Dustin, I think he's actually built in some pretty good defense these days. But, you know, things being what they are, um, man, I would love to see that. If they sign Michael Chandler, and then the first fight they make is Michael Chandler versus Dustin Poirier, whew, what an awesome fight that would be. I mean, Dustin's really kind of sitting in a great spot after beating Dan Hooker because the fights he's rumored to be in are Tony Ferguson, which we'll see if that happens. You had Michael Chandler suggesting it on Twitter yesterday. And then we didn't even talk about this on the show, but Nurmagomedov was like, yeah, there is a path back to a title shot with me if you're Conor McGregor. You got to beat Dustin Poirier. And we already know that Conor did at featherweight many years ago. But it, and you might, again, you might favor Conor to beat him again. That's no problem. But I think you would have to admit this Dustin Poirier a lot different than the last one. This version of him is just significantly better. And it's worth accepting that, I think, as a premise of any potential conflict that they might have. Kind of interesting. So we'll see what happens with Michael Chandler and Dustin. Dustin back training. Looks like he's looking for a scrap the whole nine yards. Um, and they've got nothing but good choices for him. Man, what an exciting time to be a Dustin Poirier fan or just even an observer, quite, quite honestly. Dan Patrick Radio is Sirius XM's home for Australian rules football. Walton All-Stars, Australian media icon Eddie Maguire for Aussie Football Rules America as he brings you the latest celebrity chats, tips and expert analysis of Australian football. Then stay tuned for the Aussie Rules Game of the Week. Kick the goal and Fremantle win it after the siren. It all starts Thursday at 6pm Eastern on Dan Patrick Radio Channel 211 and the Sirius XM app. So Cobb and I were, again, playing the show last night and I came across this news and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. How great is this? So I told you there was a show from childhood that we romanticize and certainly look back on with rose-colored glasses and nostalgia. And it's going to make its way to Hulu. You might be asking what that show is. Thundercats is coming to Hulu. I believe it's today. And uh, oh my goodness. <clears throat> so Thundercats aired between 1985 and 1989. In 2002, Cartoon, excuse me, Cartoon Network's programming block, Toonami, aired it, and uh, that's how a lot of sort of newer generations got in touch with it. They um, apparently there was a 2011 reboot series. I, I did not know about that, um, but Thundercats is now going to be available on Hulu. In totality, all four, I guess, seasons, or maybe there's two plus uh, per season, so up to eight. I'm not sure how many seasons of Thundercats there are. Cobb, it got me to wondering, first of all, how big were you on Thundercats? I loved Thundercats when I was a kid. Dude, the, I still see people I still see people doing Thundercats Halloween, um, what you call it, uh, costumes all the time. I, think I see it every year. <laughs> Who? Angela Hill. <laughs> Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. She has. She was lying. Um, <laughs> was that who she was? I remember when I was a kid, the best toys were always Thundercat toys. So you had the dude who you're talking about, Lionel, or I guess it was his name. I forget. But he had the glove and then the sword. And uh, th so the big things when I was a kid, tell me if this is true in your experience. Thundercats was big. Yep. Transformers was big. Yep. Um, DuckTales. Yeah, not In I, I watched it, but not as big. Inspector Gadget. That was big. Uh, I want to say X-Men. Yes. The cartoon series is what I'm talking about. TV series. Of course. Yeah. The afternoon Batman show, which was so brilliant. Excellent. Is that anywhere? <laughs> yes, it is on the DC service, which I think they're going to phase yeah. out. Um, so I think HBO Max might have it. But yes. Mm. Um, so that was a big one, and I want to say I'm missing something. Ninja what am Turtles. I missing? Ninja Turtles, G.I. Joe. Yep. G. And then He-Man. He-Man yeah. was big, too. He-Man was bigger for, again, you're about the same age as my brother. Big for you guys. He-Man, I had passed He-Man a little bit, and I was like into Ninja Turtles and other stuff. 
But yeah, He-Man was a massive one in the 80s. So what are some other ones that were like just absolutely critical when you think about like nostalgia TV shows? And it doesn't have to be cartoons per se. Just like when you think about your favorite time as a kid and what you would watch, what was on TV? Uh, okay, we mentioned some of the big ones. You know what I actually was else? It's actually on uh, Disney+. Plus. I meant to get around to it. Uh, the Spider-Man cartoon show was really good too. I don't know if I ever saw those. Oh, that was good stuff. You might want to check those out on Ty, Disney Plus. It was worth it. <laughs> Ty is showing us how what a ignorant youngin he is by saying he has no idea what Thundercats are, buddy. That's on you to figure out what how good they are. Would you watch Thunder? Do you have Hulu? Uh, Ty? I do have Hulu. I do. So, are you going to give Thundercats a try? You have to kind of get past the nineteen eighties animation a little bit. See, I'm a little disappointed because you teased it going to break. There's a show that people are reminiscing about. It's coming back. And I'm thinking, hey, Arnold, or, you know, any one of those shows, uh, Saved by the Bell. And then you say Thundercats. No idea what that show is, but I'll give it a try. Thundercats was basically a series of uh, cat-like human superheroes. And um, they all have, like, it, what, what were their names, Cobb? It's like Chitara. Chitara, you know what I mean? Panthro. Panthro. Uh, there's another one, too. He had like a whip. I'm, I'm blanking on that one. Then there were like two little ones, Kit and Cat. Uh, yes, hold on. I'm going to pull there. And then Snarf. Remember Snarf? Snarf, yeah, of course. So there, so there was Chitara, Lion-O. The big e- uh, evil dude was Mumra. Mumra. That he I was, know. M- Mumra was so bad. Panthro, Tigra, Snarf. Tigra, <laughs> Tigra yes. Uh, Wily Cat, who was kind of like a like a Batman, or uh, was like a Robin to a Batman. Pumira, Jaga, I don't remember Jaga, and then Aluro, I don't remember Aluro either. I, uh, Jagra, why do I think? Oh, was that the, was that was that the no the, yeah was that the Battle Cat? Yes, the one who became right. Battle Cat. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> wow, pretty good. There was also Linkso, Bengali. Um, let's see, Jagara, Tor, Leah. Oh no, Jagara, I think, was the one that became Battle Cat. Yeah, there's a bunch of new ones, I guess, from the rebooted series that they brought them back. I'm telling you, let me tell you something, Ty. It is perfect 1980s. The 1980s, like I went back and I watched on um on Netflix. I think Netflix has it. What was the Jim Henson one with um the crystals and then the buzzard-like creatures? Do you guys remember this? It was like 1982, and it was all made in puppets. Do you guys Fraggle know what I'm Rock? talking about? No, 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 no. Uh, the Dark Crystal. Oh, you yeah, remember yeah, this? yeah, yeah. Dark Crystal? Yeah. So I, I went back and I watched the original Dark Crystal. It, for the time, it's great, although some of the puppetry was not as advanced as it needed to be. It'll be, like, tolerable. And they redid it, and the puppetry is a lot better, but still not, not awesome. But, dude, I feel like between this... You know, it's another movie that gets lost in the 1980s nostalgia, and it was just so perfectly 1980s. Labyrinth with David Bowie. Remember that? I do. I remember not liking it though. I haven't rewatched oh, it since I was younger. <laughs> you. This is because you love Osama bin Laden. This is really your problem here. How do you problem? not like? How do you not like? The 80s was full of complete and total imagination as it related to like alternate worlds and never-ending story, labyrinth, Thundercats. It was the it was the glory years of those kinds of things, and I feel like the more of that you can really get back to. Plus, remember Jim Henson did made the Dark Crystal with nothing but puppetry, right? So there was still, you didn't have this like I'm gonna have Avatar have the best graphics ever. Who gives a shit? You know, make it live action with with uh, with actual moving creatures in real life. Um, that's what the '80s was about. Granted, Thundercats is a cartoon, but still. You know what? Never all, all, I, think, all I think because I watched that one first, I feel like I went through Labyrinth and I was like, oh, they're just trying to be like <laughs> never ending story. Like, even though it's completely different stories, I was like, oh, this lame ass thing. It's just trying to be this. And I think I just Such brushed a, it away. <laughs> you know, you don't have to pick sides, Cobb. You can like both things. No, I wasn't allowed uh, back then. I made, I made a choice. <laughs> this one was before your time, but this was another cartoon that I used to love back when I was a kid. Did you ever watch Bionic 6? Why does that sound familiar? Bionic, Bionic Six, dun it, dun it. You remember <laughs> no, that? No, no, I do not. Oh man, Bionic Six. It was like the original. You know, all, all of them were like mech warriors. You know, 
where they all had like they're all like basically jacks from Mortal Kombat, except it was a kid show. Gotcha. And uh, they could all do a bunch of stuff. They were, it was a Japanese original cartoon that they had sort of adapted for American audiences. But Bionic 6 was one of my favorite. To this day, I can remember the jingle. It has 96% fresh uh, ratings um, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. You can believe that. Or IMDb, excuse me. 96% fresh because it was that like beloved. So here's what we missed. I missed all of the, like, you know how like people like um, 30 and younger you know, like Ty's age, like uh, Adesanya, they're all into like manga and Japanese and yeah. uh, what do they call that we'll stuff? Anime. Anime. I missed all the anime. I missed. I mean, Bionic 6 is sort of like part of that a little bit, but not really. But I missed. Are you into anime, Ty? Is that what your generation gets off to? That and hentai porn? <laughs> More of the former than the latter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, well, like for someone your age, what is like the 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 key, you know, after school cartoon kind of watch? I mean, listen, you got to, as I mentioned, Hey Arnold, Rugrats. Oh, yeah. The Nickelodeon shows. Yeah. All the Nickelodeon shows. I mean, SpongeBob's a little later than that. I got to say Powerpuff Girls. I, obviously, that wasn't up my alley, but, you know, a couple friends who watched that show. So more in that realm. Did you guys ever watch Hey Dude? I, watched I have no idea what that is. Hey, wow. dude. Yeah, that, that, now hey, I'm feeling old again. <laughs> on, on Nickelodeon? You guys ever watched Hey, Dude on Nickelodeon? That was Christine, a big one. Christine Taylor's like first role ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that dude who played um, John Connor's teenage friend, like what was his name? Budnick. Like, that was Budnick. That was Salute Your Shorts. So, oh, that, I always confuse those two. God damn it. I always get those two confused. <laughs> you, you know what? You guys just jogged my memory, though. Are You Afraid of the Dark was a monster. was always awesome. Okay. Never saw one episode. You know what? I, that, that was a little pasture time, I think. And you know what another one was? You can't deny it. I know you didn't watch because I think you were probably older at that point. Power Rangers was a goddamn monster, too. Yeah, that was, uh, that was when I started aging out of that kind of stuff. I've seen Power Rangers, but I could not get into it. Yeah, Power Ranger toys cause brawls like you see on a uh, on you know Black Friday, trying to get those for your kids. Like that was that was an absolute monster then. Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, that's my wheelhouse. See, I aged out of yeah. that. I had no interest in it whatsoever. That was definitely people uh, uh, younger than me. I don't I, I don't remember. I remember the, like the toys. For, I would see it on the shelves for that kind of thing, but. You know, when they, when they had Pokemon Go, and I was like, wow, these are some sad losers. And then, like, everybody played it. I'm like, okay, well, this is apparently a lot more popular than I realized. But that was that my generation had nothing to do with that. It was too, too, too far. Yu-Gi-Oh, man, the introduction of gambling in, in uh, elementary school. How was it the introduction of gambling? Well, because you battle your friends and you put some money up on it. That's what makes it more intriguing. Uh, so, like, so it's a game? Well, Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! cards. Yeah. You go one-on-one -on -one with one of your buddies, and the winner comes out, and you win some money. Ah, okay. All right. So it's it's the kid like version a, of... Go ahead. I was going to say there's like a hierarchy of Yu-Gi-Oh! cards. So you battle your buddy. Let's say you go seven-on-seven seven with your cards, and the winner comes out victorious, and you get some money. Got it. Okay. Kind of interesting. Still, if you are of my generation, so, you know, 40-ish, 35-ish, and uh, you have Hulu, congratulations. You can binge Thundercats starting today. So there you go. Enjoy that. Uh, last bit of news for today, if we can, a bit of a fun one. I don't know if you guys saw this, but Cobb and I saw this. The world's last blockbuster um, has turned into an Airbnb. Yes, it is true. It exists in Bend, Oregon. Can, Cobb, can you tweet out the link um, on uh, at MMA on SiriusXM for actually, the last? Yeah, I actually tweeted it out with our uh, show, uh, our show tweet today. So the way it looks like you can see the pictures like it's any old Airbnb. It is designed to look like the blockbusters of your youth. Still got blockbuster and huge sort of blue and yellow sign out front. Um, there's like kids bikes out front, which are part of like the, uh, you know, design element Cobb, If you look closely, there's a DeLorean parked in the front. Did you notice that? Did notice that nice, nice. Touch. Yeah. And if you go inside, basically they've got shelves like they did before and they've got a living room there. And in the living room, 
They've got a giant, you know, TV screen. It's a bit old school, but it's a giant TV screen. But the bed turns into a, uh, excuse me, the sofa turns into a bed. And in it, they've got all this accoutrement everywhere. They've got like old VCRs. You don't watch the, I mean, you watch it on modern things, but they've got old VCRs. It's kind of like a, like almost like an antique score, score, like decor development. And there's like uh, videotapes in there, but they're ejected, still in the hold, but ejected. And they say, be kind, rewind. They've got Doritos bags at the front, but the Doritos bags are like the 1980s style of Doritos bags. And anyway, it's just a real cool nostalgia bit. You can rent it. It's got one bed and a half bath, so you can't really shower there. You can use the bathroom and you can sleep over. I guess you have to shower someplace else. For $4 a night. $4 a night. So, Cobb, I was looking up availability. Do you want to guess when the next available slot is to get in on a $4 a night converted blockbuster? When is it, like five years from now? (laughs) Not that far, but I looked in September, all booked. I looked at October, all booked. November, there are... There is, uh, no, all booked. There was actually two days open yesterday. That is now booked. I looked at December, all booked. January, same thing. Not a, not, not a single day open. February, all booked. March, uh, March is all booked. If you look at April, got April's booked. May has, nope, May's booked. June, booked. July, booked. August 2021, so basically a year from now, all booked. September, same thing. October, same thing. We're almost in 2022 at this point. Booked, booked. Yeah, you have to go into 2022 before you even see anything there. My guess is there's probably going to be a wait list where people can get in on or if people cancel last minute, you'd get notified. Would you stay in a converted blockbuster, Cobb? I've seen these photos, and I definitely would. But you know what I think they really should do, Luke? I think it would be hilarious, and I would watch it. Get a group of, like, 13-year-olds or 14-year-olds and have them stay the night there and see if they can even work any of the equipment. See how long it takes them to figure out how to turn a a VHS tape on. So they they couldn't watch on a projector. They'd have to watch on a VHS. Yeah, like if you saw it, they, had the, they had the little VCRs. I think there's like a five-disc CD player. I want to see these kids try to work this technology and see if they can do it. So I, I, I fast-forwarded all the way to August 2023. There are no available dates. Doesn't exist. Um, so anyway, they have amenities, Wi-Fi, air conditioning, heating, breakfast, smoke alarm, free parking on the premises for those who are interested, TV, essentials, fire extinguisher, carbon monoxide, blah, 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 and everything else in between. But if you go and look at the pictures, it looks super, super cool. I would love to spend one night there just staying up eating junk food and watching like, I don't know, some series of movies one more time in this kind of thing, and especially because it's $4 a freaking night. Blockbuster should do this. Like any kind of failed business should figure out a way to turn itself into a, like a nostalgia Airbnb. I bet you they would make a ton of money doing that. I mean, what else, what else is Blockbuster going to do? This is the only thing left for them, I suppose. So you want to check those out and, and maybe get on a wait list if you can. Check us out at MMA on SiriusXM. We tweeted out the link. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on SiriusXM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on SiriusXM.